Premier League on OTB. Exclusive Premier League live commentaries every Sunday. The very best expert analysis on your phone and for free. Download the OTB Sports app now. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Now, great to have you with us for the Sunday Papers. So we have lots to talk about, as you might imagine. I'll run you through the back pages. First of all, we'll start with the Sunday Mirror. Lots of Mayo, lots of Dublin across the back pages. So here we are, a picture of Jordan Flynn... It's May Day, Dublin crash out after six years of dominance as the West goes wild. Mayo 17 points, Dublin 14 points after extra time. If you missed that game, uh, you missed hell of a 55-minute run. First half, not so good, and then things took off in a big way. So the Mail here, Mail on Sunday, Mayo find that bit extra. Dublin's 45-match winning run is ended in a dramatic, ferocious, thrilling semi-final as the Mail on Sunday verdict. And then, of course, the other story... Uh, beneath the pictures of the Mayo celebrations, GA facing dilemma after Tyrone's statement. Tyrone yesterday uh, didn't withdraw from the championship, but they certainly withdrew from next Saturday's rescheduled semi-final at Crow Park. So I suppose the ball is in the GA's court at this stage. That's something we'll come to in the paper review today. Uh, Sunday World then. Horan's Heroes picture of Tommy Conroy, Dublin 14 points, Mayo 17 points. Mayo turned Dublin around in one stunning semi-final. And then beneath that picture of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Pogba to show United front. Um, that's uh, Solskjaer talking about how good uh, Pogba was and how uh, the return of the fans could convince Pogba to stay at Manchester United after uh, this season. And then we have the Sunday Independent and it's Mayo Crush Old Order. Again, brilliant pictures, as you can imagine, from Crow Park yesterday. This one of Rhino Dunhu celebrating at full time. Dublin's era of dominance is over after a thrilling final. That's Dermot Crow there and the front page of the Sunday Independent. And then finally, Sunday Times. Again, great picture here. It's Jordan Flynn again on his knees. Clenched fist. Mayo's finest hour. Dublin drive for seven in a row is ended after extra time. And then beneath that... The uh, main story the Sunday Times have beneath the Mayo pictures, Tottenham set to keep Kane for one more season. So it's Jonathan Northcroft and they boast here an exclusive. Harry Kane increasingly likely to stay at Spurs with Daniel Levy digging in to blunt Manchester City's ambitions of signing the England captain. So the view at Spurs is that City have left it too late to negotiate a deal for their striker and team leader whom they would struggle to replace. There are only 17 days before the summer transfer window shuts and it's expected that Kane will accept saying at Spurs for at least another campaign with both club and player reassessing at the end of next season when Kane moves into the last two years of his contract. I don't know, Harry Kane, you're 28, you're 29 next year. I kind of feel like you're running out of time for this move, but... It would seem, according to the Sunday Times, with 17 days to go in the transfer window, Spurs, it's said here, won't even accept, even if City do pay the £160 million fee that Levy is reported to be demanding. Even then, apparently, Spurs say it's doubtful that there would be a shift in position now. Look, who knows, this may well all play out in a different way, and I'm sure uh, Spurs are feeding these lines to newspapers as part of their potential negotiation but that is where we are on the front page of the Sunday Times very happy to say we're joined by Ryle Nugent who is back from Tokyo and by Colm Keyes of the Irish Independent Gents you're both very welcome Colm I presume you were at Crow Park yesterday evening 
Yes, I was, Joe. Uh, thrilling, thrilling occasion as these uh, these two teams have invariably served up over the last decade. This last night was their was their tenth meeting uh, in in ten years. It's been it's been a phenomenal rivalry. Although at halftime yesterday, I remember writing a note down. I was uh, filing 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 copy for for our digital edition. Uh, straight after the final whistle and I had a paragraph written to say that this is this is no longer a rivalry and in fact it had been veering that way over the last, the previous two years 2019 and 2020 but what a stirring storming comeback it was from uh, from Mayo they really really threw caution to the wind and went at them and obviously uh, rumours of Dublin's demise haven't been as greatly exaggerated uh, as, as we probably thought in the build up to this game because all the mistakes and all the errors and all the ailments they had suffered during the the Leinster, the Leinster championships resurfaced here and against against better opponents they were ultimately found out uh, in the long run. Fantastic win for Mayo, the relief at the end. I was down actually in the beneath the Hogan stand afterwards and to see some of their former players, Seamus O'Shea and Chris Barrett, waiting outside the dressing room door to embrace some of the younger players just really summed up for me. Uh, what what it meant to this generation of players and and to these to the Mayo support obviously which was there uh, in in such such huge numbers and you know beating Dublin it's only a subset of what they're really after the the All Ireland title but within that that it's an enormous battle for them it's not quite the war but it's an enormous battle to have finally beaten Dublin for the first time since 2012 they've lost six times and drawn twice and. We, we know the backstory of Dublin and Mayo and for it to finally happen in these circumstances. Extra time, new way to new 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 way for this for this rivalry and for them to go and win it the way they did. Uh, it's really liberating for them. It sure is. So, Christy O'Connor here. Match was one of greatest comebacks in living memory. This is page three of the Sunday Times, and he says the day when Dublin were finally beaten was always going to be a seminal moment. But the manner of victory added to the history of the occasion and the purity of the sensation. As the Green and Red of Mayo boomed out over the loudspeakers afterwards, the chorus reverberated around the ground like a war cry signalling the end of the most hurtful oppression imaginable at the hands of Dublin for more than a decade. And he has some of the stats, as Christy O'Connor always does. So he points out in the first half, Mayo's conversion rate was only 40%, and they did have some really dreadful wides, which James Horan referenced afterwards. So they went from 40% conversion rate in the first half to 71% for the remaining 55 minutes and then conversely Dublin who only across those 55 minutes managed four scores their conversion rate in the first half was 77% it dropped right down to 28% indicative rile of a general malaise which crept into the Dublin play uh, Hi Joe uh, yeah um, it, it's hard to know I mean it was a remarkable uh, game to watch like at, at, at half time I'll be honest um, and I won't retrofit if I hadn't been coming on here this morning I was gone to probably watch Liverpool because it was dull mm. you know like it looked to me and I think it looked to everybody 10 points to was it 10-4 yeah. at half time and Dublin were there without even hitting third gear it seemed they were completely in control of the match and then well we all saw what happened in the second half and it, and it was remarkable and and yeah, you can say that Dublin got themselves, or maybe the architects of their own misfortune, and they haven't hit their straps. And 
Sure, but for Mayo to do it in the manner in which they have, because over the years they've come so close and maybe should have won other games and, and looked from the beginning like they were going to. This was a complete turner. And this looked like a, a team that were beaten before they even started, had no clue how to go about it. And then all of a sudden find themselves in the position they did. And boy, did they take their opportunity. I, I, I was... I was so impressed with them. Uh, and the reflection in the new newspapers today. And in fairness, it's a really tough one for the newspapers when it finished so late with extra time to turn around that level of content that they have turned around. Um, but there's there's some really, really good stuff uh, uh, to get your head wrapped around. I, I was interested, as I often am, to pick up Joe Brawley as the first point um, uh, of reference as to what he thought of the game. He's on page three of the, of the Sunday Indo, you know him. His point was made about Rob Henley nailing the 45 imperiously as the dubs were done. Henley was unrecognisable from the psychological wreck you've come to know. Here, he played magnificently throughout his inch-perfect kickouts, quarterbacking Mayo on their way uh, to complement two superb frees from around 60 metres and then that killer 45. Uh, and, 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 you know, it was about redemption in so many ways for Mayo yesterday. But as the point is made throughout uh, many of the articles today it's it's only redemption if they go on to finish the job <laughs> and 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 you know we've seen stories like this before in all sorts of codes uh, in all sorts of guises you get over that major hurdle can they get back to that level of emotional and physical peak control it focus it, and channel it and get into an all-around fine do what they've been threatening to do for so long yeah I, one last point, Chris O'Connor, it reminds me as well of, and again, sorry, I do take your point on this more being about Mayo in most ways, but he says, uh, Dublin will still wonder how they lost their way so badly. Sourcing seven of, of their first 10 first half scores off Mayo turnovers underlined the intensity and the tackle rate. Uh, Mayo were sitting deep, but they were standing off Dublin and they were being ruthlessly uh, punished for it by Dublin's patient probing. And then this is the point. Kieran Kilkenny's point uh, scored at the end of a sequence of 26 passes, which lasted two seconds shy of three minutes, is one he references. That column was the point where you thought this was incredibly anticlimactic when Dublin put together basically that three minutes of keep ball, finished it off with a point, and Mayo, it felt like this Mayo, as opposed to maybe the Mayo of half a decade ago, this Mayo felt powerless to interrupt their pattern. Yeah, they really looked at arm's length. And those... Those patterns of play, Joe, that Dublin string together wing to wing and they almost pedestrianise the game in ways now. And there was just one memory I have is of the, the last play which forced the which forced the 45 that Rob, Rob Henley converted at the second attempt. And I think it was Brian Howard is in the goal mouth and he stands. He's literally standing as uh, uh, waiting to see what's going to happen. And, and they almost walk the ball out of trouble. And Conor O'Shea, the Mayo substitute, puts pressure on Davy Byrne to... Uh, he puts pressure on him to force that 45. I think Dublin have lulled themselves into... Now, I won't say a false sense of security, but there's something about the way they keep the ball. And they've been doing it for years because one of their points in the 2019 All-Ireland Final was similarly constructed. Paul Mannion came in. It was about, again, one of those two or three minute spells where they keep the ball. But... In some ways, I feel, especially, it's it's been happening more and more that they've they've adopted this tactic of literally walking the ball across the, from from wing to wing, and in some ways, I felt as I, as I was watching them, I won't say implode, but I was watching them fall away. Really, when they hit crisis mode, they couldn't 
they couldn't really engineer a way out of it. And I wondered, is that reliance on that possession game, has it blunted their sense of adventure, maybe their sense of ambition to make, to have a cut or have a go in a different way? And uh, I just feel that they have taken that element of the game perhaps too far. And that certainly manifested during the provincial championship. Yeah. So those moves, the, the great patience, the possession, the premium on possession that, that they that they play. And obviously teams defend very deeply, so they're forced to go that way. But I, I feel it's now becoming to their detriment. And uh, I thought that I thought that surfaced yesterday. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting what Colm is saying there. You know, like it is that point where where they've been put to the pin of their collar before when the questions have been asked by by the opposition, whether that's Mayo or, or, or whoever it might have been. They've always found a way. And yesterday you genuinely felt going into extra time that they were the more vulnerable. And that that is never the way you felt about Dublin when it's been that close. When they when they've had their backs to the wall, they've been magnificent in the way they've they've dealt with it. I hope, though, going back to the Mayo story, that it that Dublin's demise, for the want of a better uh, description, isn't isn't just a story that comes out of this championship year. You know, I really feel like you and, and and you can't get away from it. I guess you think back to the great dynasties in any sport, whether it's the Chicago Bulls or whether it's the Manchester United team of the of the nineties. You know, there there is some sort of uh, uh, intrigue with unpicking where it all went horribly wrong and where 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 it started to fall apart. But but it the team that that eventually got to them is the team that has so often looked the most likely to get to them, and that's a group that have rejuvenated themselves and gone back to the well and found a way. And I think they deserve enormous credit for that. And I, and I hope it doesn't get lost in the in the picking apart of, of where it went wrong for Dublin. Yeah, I'd say there's a fairly nice even balance of the two, actually. And I think that's about right, because both are big stories in their own right. Sure. Like the Dublin, I mean, you said it's not an implosion. It probably was an implosion by their standards, those 55 minutes after halftime. Like Shane McGrath says in the Mail on Sunday, he sums it up quite well. The feeling has built all summer that this is a Dublin team playing on memory. And I think that rang true. They do feel like they're playing a touch on memory though there's a good point Colm O'Rourke um, amongst others talks about the impact of the bench I think the Dublin bench contributed a point like so often these games yeah. have been decided by the bench even you take last year it was Mannion and Howard off the bench which really settled that final whereas this time around I mean the contribution of the Mayo bench was extraordinary and I suppose by extension then Ryle the contribution of James Horan to go to that bench the way he did I mean he went on 27 minutes he made his first substitution and then to see Aidan O'Shea going off on 48 minutes is not something we're accustomed to. When, 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 he, put, when he made the decision on Aidan O'Shea, like it was, uh, again, Colin is better placed to, to make a call on this than I am, but it felt like it was the line in the sand. It was either the white flag going up and, and another collapse or it was the line in the sand from where we kick on. It was an immensely brave thing to do. And and James Horan deserves enorm enormous credit. I'm a massive fan of Aidan O'Shea, but he didn't seem to have the impact on the game yesterday that you and we all expected that he might. And for Horan to make that call was, it's so publicly, like you're opening yourself up to 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 real, I guess, ridicule if it goes, if it goes horribly wrong and significant questioning at, at worst. It was a really brave thing to do, and I and and it paid dividends. And it was it was the moment, really. If you're looking for the moment, it turned for me that it was the moment, Colin. 
Yeah, I think James Horn had his best ever afternoon stroke evening on a sideline as uh, as Mayo manager. Not just for, you can say, his ruthlessness for taking off Aidan O'Shea, because Aidan O'Shea is captain. He's one of the most experienced, he's actually the most experienced player they have now on the starting team. Uh, he dates back to 2009 with this man. He's the totemic figure. He's very much the... He's very much the emblem in, in in so many ways of this of this Mayo team. But things did not go well for him. He missed two early chances, one from general play, one from Mark. And you could see the confidence ebbing for him, from him. And as the mistakes piled up, you know, maybe it was eroding confidence. And I think James Horn probably recognised that. And he moved to take him out. Uh, there was there was no sentiment there. He got him out just the same way as he got Enda Hessian, one of the young substitutes in. And he made it. He made a really big, big difference. But I think in terms of matchups, and matchups have always been key to this rivalry, getting the right Mayo defender on the right talented Dublin forward. And there's so much talent in that uh, in in that Dublin forward line. And of course, Mayo lost Oshin Mullen, their most probably their most progressive of those young players uh, last weekend to a quad injury. And yet they were still able to adapt. And I thought when Porik O'Hara lined up on Conor Callaghan, um, I thought, Mayo could be inviting a bit of trouble here, but how how wrong I was! O'Hara was superb, and he's such an interesting backstory in that he's he's I think he's twenty eight, twenty nine, and yet this is probably his only, this is his first fully sustained run in the championship team. And of course, he's MMA and he's quite a vibrant character and all of that, but he really is he is a dog of war. And uh, I think Joe Brawley mentioned in his piece, you know, he he typifies the new character uh, in this Mayo team. I'd, I'd be inclined to agree, but I really do think the man that holds all this together is is Lee Keegan. I thought he was absolutely superb uh, in that game. And he picked up uh, Kieran, Kenny initi- Kieran Kilkenny initially, but then took Con O'Callaghan. And Horan uh, held his ground on that and that he didn't uh, he didn't keep the matchups. Lee Keegan stayed at centre-back for the duration of the game. Porco Hora stayed in the, in the full back line. So from that point of view, and he put Paddy Durkin on Cormac Costello, which was an interesting one because you might have thought he'd put him on Kilkenny, Kieran Kilkenny, but they recognised Costello as the quickest player on the Dublin team and they matched him up with their quickest player as well. So so all round, Horan had a really, really good day, a good evening in terms of his matchups and his substitutions and obviously you know, their, their, their transformation through the third quarter because third quarters is, are is the period that like like all great champions that and this extends the golf to on the third day but the third quarter for Dublin if you look back at 2019 where they played that scintillating brand of football yeah. and then even last year's All Ireland it was in the third quarter when they when they really kicked on to beat Mayo in the previous two games they didn't score in the third quarter yesterday that's that's some remarkable difference yeah, it, was, it was staggering Kieran Kilkenny by the way at half time sorry Ryle I'll let you back no, in two seconds but on Kilkenny two points from play before half time he had a mark as well scored he won a free which was pointed and peripheral in the uh, second half which is testament to the job done on him Brawley says of Pora Gohora that he met him at walking his dog last week in Ballina bouncing along with his ponytail smiling broadly give him hell I said I will he said Brawley writes do not let the pink boots fool you heaven forbid uh, real men couldn't wear pink, Joe. Do not let I'm the pink. Amazed, Joe, I'm always amazed at the amount of people Joe Joe Brawley meets from week to week. <laughs> uh, he says this man's a terrific bit of stuff and a natural leader. In Crow Park, he took the great Kieran Kilkenny apart physically and more importantly mentally, so that long before the end, Kilkenny had accepted his fate. Keegan likewise is a leader, and with O'Hara at his side, Mayo have two men, not afraid to win. Sorry, Ryle. 
No, I was just going to say, you know, there's a there's a there's a team team might be too strong, but there's definitely references all the way through the newspapers and Shane uh, McGrath in the in the mail on Sunday uh, referenced it, and I, I'm kind of interested to hear what what Calm has to say. If nothing else, he says, uh, this is Shane McGrath, if nothing else, the closing stage is a normal time here should silence forever the talk that Dublin are wedded solely to football's higher virtues. They try and win in any way they can. That is certainly explicable in a sporting context, but it should temper the corporate message tirelessly peddled about Dublin. And and I guess that's in reference to what was uh, were, were some pretty strong challenges and, the, and, and a... And a, a consideration of how the referee handles a number of those incidents through the game yesterday you know there was there was the um there was the issue with the black card that wasn't towards the end uh, there was a small uh, shoulder to shoulder challenge uh, that that looks to me like well it, it's it's more about the, the issue of dealing with concussion in sport that would concern me uh, and the head challenges and how you deal with that than the actual incident itself i found it remarkable that that was just allowed go by without any reference or consideration to to what had happened that it was waved through and it worries me in sport today whatever the codes to see something like that waved through without consideration being given uh, uh, whether whether intentional um, mistimed or accidental it did not look good it wasn't good and and for me every sport now has a responsibility and duty of care to deal with those situations particularly in, in when they're so uh, clear for everyone to see uh, and they're so public you just can't let those slide by and and i i had real concern about the way that was handled yesterday mm. colin do you want to come in and the nature yeah, take, of the game and, and Connor Lane generally, because obviously yeah, he was take, a big focus uh, of the I game. Shane McGrath's point first, uh, if nothing else, the closing stage of mo- normal time here should silence forever the talk that Dublin are wedded solely to football's higher virtues. I would say to that, Royal, that that, that was certainly nailed down and, and finished forever at the end of the 2017 All-Ireland final when Dublin did exactly what they had to do to frustrate that last Mayo kick, kick out. I could probably go back to the closing stages of the 2013 All-Ireland final against Mayo when they did exactly what they had to do. I remember distinctly Kevin McManaman pulling down Lee Keegan and the string of frees that led in those closing stages. So Dublin have always done, despite, despite the pro- proclamations of virtues around you know, fair play and all of that and, and playing the game in a certain way, Dublin have always, when they've had to, resorted to what they have to do like all champions do and like all teams do so they are not they are not exclusive they've played a lovely brand of football and yes they've been terrific champions absolutely all of that but when they've had to get down and dirty they've gone and done it too and there there is no there is no mistaking that yesterday i thought they were very very indisciplined five of the starting six forwards were yellow carded uh, i felt two more could have been black carded out of those five there were already three black cards and as for that incident with Owen McLaughlin and John Small that you referenced I have to say in real time I thought "Mm, that's probably shoulder to shoulder sometimes the views even on the TV screens in Crow Park don't always show the angle but I went home last night and I watched it it's a very very dangerous challenge that the elbow was up and obviously Owen McLaughlin has been left requiring uh, removal by motorized stretcher. So it, it was it was a dangerous challenge, whether 
how intentional or not it was. Obviously, that's a different matter. It, it, he, he had not a lot of time to react. But yes, you're right. Those should be pursued. Uh, it'd be very, very difficult uh, for the disciplinary body to, you know, can Connor Lane really say, well, I didn't actually see it. He didn't see it right, but he still saw it. And that's the only out that the GA have for uh, for pursuing this case, that the, that the referee didn't see it. He, he he had to have seen something, but he obviously, they've, they've, they've let it on. So it wasn't, it wasn't a good call. Um, I felt there were many other instances as well. Obviously, James McCarthy and Dermot O'Connor at the very end. I do think, even though Dublin are out of the championship, some of these will be will be pursued. And even though Aidan O'Shea's presence on the field may draw some attention too at the end for that for that uh, altercation at the end, just 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 around Henley's forty-five. But yes, yeah. that was and far too often in hurling, uh, you see these head challenges go unpunished. And uh, it has certainly crept into the game. If you recall, Richie Hogan got sent off in the 2019 uh, All-Ireland Final, probably for a collision that was more benign, shall I say, than John Smalls and Owen McLaughlin last night. And I thought at that stage, well, this is a fork in the road for head challenges uh, in Gaelic games, not just hurling, but also football. But that, that hasn't transpired yet. Yeah, I, I, I think it's important just for me to come back on that and say I, this is not a criticism of the referee. I think referees have incredibly difficult jobs to do and they're seeing it in real time and all it takes is a body to be slightly in the way and they don't see everything that they should. For me, this isn't really even about the specific challenge yesterday other than to say it highlights something that each individual sport for me has a responsibility to get a hold of and it's not about retrospectively going after it. If that's a decision for the organisation and for the game, then so be it. What I'm talking about is going forward. If you can have technology in place to ascertain whether a ball goes over a bar or not, or whether it's inside or outside a post, it is more important for me that technology is used to help referees and officials to deal with anything that is in and around the head area, whether that be in football, hurling, soccer, rugby, or any other sport. Like we now are at a point of understanding the damage that concussion does to young brains and, and to all brains. And and we have, sport has a duty of care to its, to, with, to its athletes to expect them to be protected. And again, whether intentional, unintentional, mistimed or accidental, it has got to be dealt with and it has got to be stamped out of each and every game. And for me, it's one of those that if you can't in the full glare of publicity recognize that something like that happens and we have got a problem and we have to address it, well, if you don't, then you've got to understand the consequences, and the consequences are so dangerous, I cannot believe they can be ignored. Mm. So let me, there's loads in all that, and it's all really interesting, fellas. Let me throw a few things. So on the general cynicism of Dublin, absolutely, but I mean, that applies basically to every single every team, team in GEA. <laughs> I mean, Lee Keegan is not averse to ripping out his GPS and throwing it at Dean Rock, so it applies to everyone. On this small incident, I can really genuinely see how Connor Lane thought it was just a good shoulder where there's a hospital pass and player is stationary and small can line him up and whack him with a shoulder and that's like one of the thrilling aspects of the game that we all kind of enjoy in my opinion the elbow wasn't really a factor I know in some of the photos it looked like the elbow was up I think it sort of came up afterwards as a result of the collision I just think he went to do him with the shoulder to his shoulder like really nail him but in a relatively fair way but I think in that instance 
all the responsibilities on you because the vulnerable player has no way of protecting himself. He's waiting for the ball. He's, he's, you know, he's blind to you coming to him. So if you make contact with the head, especially at that force, I think it's 100% on you and it probably has to be a red. It's, a, it's akin to rugby where the responsibility is on the tackler not to make contact with the head. And like in fairness again to Small, there was a touch of a dip in the turn, like, you know, McLaughlin's jaw goes down as he's kind of taking possession and turning. But again, I think when you're coming in with that force, you really have to anticipate that. So that should have been a red. Like for me, the one which bothered me the most about Lane in some respects was the black card that wasn't given because it was just the very diff- definition of a black card, like drag down off the ball cynically and he gives a yellow. So he clearly saw it and he saw what happened. And he, he for me, he completely bottled that decision. That in Like the McLaughlin one is more dangerous and the game will have to stamp it out. But I can understand how what Lane saw, akin to what you saw, column in the stadium. But the yellow for the black card one was a complete bottle job. Like that was actually unacceptable. And I got the impression that Connor Lane came back out for extra time, brandishing his black cards here, there and everywhere, like a man who had maybe got word from someone that you're losing control of this a little bit, Connor, and you've been a little bit shy in certain moments. And I thought that's how he was behaving a little bit in extra time. Yeah, of course, uh, it was a pull down because he pulled his jersey. Now, a, a jersey pull in the GAA, if the player whose jersey is pulled stays upright, is not even the yellow card. It's a tick. Yeah. But if the player goes to ground, then you can quite credibly say that he has been pulled down. As I felt, as I felt Kevin McLaughlin was in that instant, it happened in front of Connor and if it, it was either a tick for pulling the jersey or a black card, it was. I didn't think it was a yellow card. It should have been a black card. I thought it was a clear cut black card. I thought Conor Callahan was the other one I felt was was lucky because he he had pulled back. And even Niall Scully, uh, for his incident earlier, and he was yellow carded for it. He tripped one of the Mayo players. He appeared to trip. Whether that was deliberate or not, that's that's the other question. So yes, that Davy Byrne one, and Davy Byrne actually won the next kick out. Now, he was the player that was forced over the line for the 45, but he won the next kickout. So in the next play, he got the ball. Um, and uh, did that make a vital difference at the end of normal time? It probably did if he if he shouldn't have been on the field. Uh, Ryle raised an interesting point about the use of video in Gaelic games. This has been on the table uh in recent years, but has been rejected outright. And uh, I remember the director, former director general, Porrick Duffy, was very much against it because, and he quoted Nigel Owens, the former uh, uh, rugby international referee, uh, in that he, Nigel Owens was expressing fears, and Porrick mentioned this in his director general's report, that rugby was becoming a far too elongated game because of video, uh, resort to video. And as we saw in the line series, well, those fears have really come to pass for rugby. But notwithstanding that, there has been attempts by counties, namely Limerick, in recent years to try and introduce the use of video. But so far, it has been rejected on the grounds of, well, what are you going to use it for? Every incident in a game, how long will that take? And that's the fears in the GAA. While it would be a great aid and referees are really far, certainly in terms of scores and incidents around the uh, around penalties, um, but as regards discipline, there isn't really a view out there. Uh, but it would be a great aid for a referee to be able to call in somebody else, have a quick look at what everybody at home was able to see last night and take a second opinion and make a judgment on it. It would be a good aid. But how long? I mean, there was seven minutes of 
added time and normal time, if you're resorting to video, how long does a half of Gaelic football become yeah. then? That's the fear. And like one of the great things about football is the way it flows. You know, God, after sitting through that line series, it was horrendous. And God, it's lovely to sit down and watch a 35 minute half that flows and grabs you. You get absorbed in and like what happened with rugby will happen in GEA in that bit by bit, the TMO role grows and grows and grows. And the, re and the managers put on huge pressure, as we saw in the line series. And so the referees royal go out and they're tentative and they're afraid to make a decision without watching 20 replays. And suddenly we have 45 minutes, ha 45 minute halves of GEA. Uh, I, I absolutely get those concerns. I think in, in a lot of ways, the video referee and VAR in, in football uh, have, have caused issues for both games and I have no doubt that bringing in any sort of video uh, referee is going to cause an issue whether that be football hurling or any other sport because it's it requires a change of 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 approach my my issue comes back and I and I don't want to sound over singular about this but my issue comes back around to player welfare mm. and 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 if and if you're asking a referee and I and I I think what happened on the Lions tour with, with Erasmus and Gatlin to a lesser extent and the pressure they're trying to put on referees and the inferences that they're making are outrageous. And I think they should be held to account like that. If the coaches and managers of international, inter-county and, and club teams are going to behave in a way that brings referees' ability to do their job into question and disrepute, that in the manner in which it's been done, they need to be held accountable for that. But, but but it is going back to player welfare and asking a referee to see something from an angle that we all see it uh, in a split second when there are so many other things going on I, it isn't realistic no. so so where does it where does it come in it comes in for me first and foremost around player welfare as I think it should with rugby as well if somebody takes the head off somebody and the referee's blindsided, and they need to be sanctioned and it needs to be stamped out of the game, then use the video referee to do that. Yeah, OK. Uh, one last um, point for you, Colm, and then we'll get to the other stories. Just on uh, Dublin, because, you know, it's such an amazing story, what they've done over the previous six years and then this slippage this year. <clears throat> I remember reading Dermot Crow in the Sunday Independent a uh, couple of weeks back and... Again, he wasn't saying it was 100% the case, and so this comes with a health warning, but he was saying, you know, there, there's been some talk, some talk that maybe Stephen Cluxton hadn't been best pleased with the breaking of the COVID training ban. Now, again, that comes with a health warning, so I don't know if that's the case. But even just kind of letting that hang in the ether for a second, this general kind of slippage, it does feel, you know, you take the discipline yesterday, like contrast, say, 2017, when they dragged the Mayo lads down at the kickout because the game was done. It was cynical, but it was also intelligent. Whereas contrast that with James McCarthy in front of Connor Lane yesterday, dragging the Mayo lad down as they're punting the ball in to try and score a goal. It was just silly. It was a loss of discipline. It was a lack of kind of clarity. Um, and that loss of discipline maybe was manifest across the, the game. Something has slipped there in some way for some reason or other. It's churlish and unfair to put everything on Desi Farrell's door, but it's hard not to notice that you know some of these things you just wonder would Jim Gavin stand for them uh, I suppose first of all Stephen Cluxton's departure uh, there will be a much greater focus on that now and obviously Stephen Cluxton's a very private individual and you can really only speculate as to how the Covid breach last March end of March uh, really really played out uh, with him 
I'd be general in this and say in a squad of 36 or whatever it was, it stands to reason that not all of them are going to be happy about a group training together, uh, given that Dublin have a reputation and had have, a, have had a reputation under Jim Gavin for, for doing things right and largely doing the right thing at the right time. Um, would that breach have happened under Jim Gavin's tenure? I would suggest pretty sure it wouldn't have. Uh, they would be they would be guarded about things like that. So from that point of view, maybe things did get a little bit looser. Maybe maybe there was just that looseness that that wasn't that wasn't there. And perhaps perhaps Cluxton has 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 recognised that. We don't know. We're not in the dressing room, and uh, Cluxton is obviously not one to divulge that. But yes, they're probably they're probably. Uh, there probably is a little bit of slippage there in in some respects, and maybe maybe it's natural too. Maybe after maybe after six years of winning, and you must remember some of those were involved in 2013, and even in McCarthy and Fitzsimons' case back to 2011 as well. Maybe there's just natural slippage there that the that the weariness of being your at your best nearly all of the time eventually gets to a team, and it, it probably it was probably heading that way uh, last year. Only Kerry were derailed, and to a lesser extent, Donegal were derailed, and and really Dublin had a had a procession to the All Ireland title, and you know a young and new Mayo team as we know now that they are uh, couldn't couldn't reel them back in, but I do think there is an asterisk over Cluxton's departure still. Why was it? Why did it, why why did that happen? Um, it looked like he was going again. Um, and I do think there is there is probably something there, and maybe it relates back. But again, couldn't say we're only speculating and maybe just piecing it together. But uh, they were certainly unsettled in Wexford and against Mead. Picked up a bit against Kildare. They certainly weren't themselves all year. That's mm. for sure. Mm. Couldn't be interesting now. They may well go away, lick their wounds, and channel all that hurt into another six in a row, very easily. Um, just <laughs> on the Tyrone situation, uh, Ryle, before we leave the GEA, Dennis Walsh, for instance, page five of the Sunday Times, you know, he, he talks about the effect of COVID on Emer Lamb, who obviously went on to win a bronze uh, in Tokyo after uh, suffering COVID. And she was talking about trying to get back from it and how, you know, I'd be going for walks. She said I'd look at my heart rate. It'd be 140, 150 just going for walks. Normally it'd be less than 100. It was staggering was her sense of trying to get back from COVID. And then on the Sport Ireland website, Dennis quotes that um, there's a graduated return to play graphic and the process doesn't even begin until 17 days after the virus has been detected in the athlete system. Includes seven days without symptoms. According to the Sport Ireland guide, an athlete should not return to full training until a further 17 days have elapsed at the earliest. And at that time, exercise is ramped up in daily increments. Taken altogether, that amounts to more than a month from diagnosis to a safe return to full training loads. So a full month from diagnosis to full uh, training load. So uh, Dennis says even if their petition, Tyrone's, that is for a postponement until August 29th had been successful, it would not have put them in a position to prepare as they would wish for a game of this magnitude. GA now has no choice but to carry on. Any further postponements into September cannot be countenanced. Losing the opportunity to play an All-Ireland semi-final is a deep wound for Tyrone to bear. But when the dust settles, they must reflect on the ins and outs of how this outbreak was handled. Did every Tyrone player follow the protocols scrupulously? Everyone? Question mark. Was everything done to minimise the risk of transmission in the days after the Ulster final? Only the Tyrone players and management can answer these questions. Just a fortnight remains in the inter-county summer 
the danger is clear and present still. So that was Dennis Walsh and the Tyrone situation. What's your read of it, Ryle? Yeah, I, I, the, the Sunday Times has that uh, uh, story on pages four and five with Michael Foley's piece uh, on page four and that piece you refer to from Dennis uh, on page five. Look, this for me is one that no matter what the answer is, it's not going to be satisfactory and it'll it'll provoke a huge reaction and it'll provoke significant questions. I, I do not envy the GAA's uh, position on this one. I, I, I guess the Michael Foley piece... Uh, asks the questions that everybody's considering. You know, the outcomes, whatever they do, he says, are grim. If the GA extend the season to play the semi-final, that decision could set a significant precedent for county boards to cope with if similar circumstances arise at club level in the autumn. If they don't, Tyrone's departure damages severely the integrity of the championship already hurt by the revision of the knockout system. It also leaves Kerry in an awful position going into an All-Ireland final, still provisionally set for September the 4th. And without a game uh, since July the 25th, and and the issues go on and on and on. I guess the Dennis Walsh piece really puts you in a situation when you look at that Emer Lamb experience and the advice being given to elite athletes, of which all these Tyrone players are. Like, if they extended, is that going to be good enough? And 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 where do you draw the line? Because if you do extend it and for some reason, the COVID situation in Tyrone continues or forbids that it happens in another county where what happens if there was an outbreak in Kerry in the meantime? What happens if there's an outbreak in Mayo? And like, where where does this end mm. and the impacts that it has on the club game that are so importantly protected and, and redesigned as a result of what's happened over the last uh, uh, 18 months? Like, where did the GAA go with this one? I don't know what the answer is. I genuinely don't know what the answer is. And it's going to be really interesting to see where they draw the line on this because it, it is perilous. Yeah. What are you hearing, Colin? Well, I think there'll probably be a decision tomorrow morning at some stage. I think that's that's where it's, that's where it's looking at. Uh, initially, Joe, I would have thought, now they're going to move on with this here. But the more, uh, you know, the... If you if you go back to Newbridge or Noher in 2018, and the venue was set for Croke Park for Kildare and Mayo, one of the great uh, weeks, I might add. <laughs> one of the great weeks. One of the great weeks, yeah. And you thought initially, well, they're not going to budge on this. Yeah. And within a couple of days, negotiations had taken place. Now, I will. The distinction here is the public anger and the groundswell was that the game should be played in Newbridge. It's probably not as strong, and indeed it's probably very split here. But I think rather than, uh, I think this probably could be a leaning towards refixing this game. I think I think that would have huge consequences uh, down the line. And if you're a Sligo footballer after their exit without playing a game from last year's championship for, for much the same reasons, a COVID outbreak weren't in the position to field, albeit... I was speaking to Neil Ewing, the former Sligo player, during the week, and he suggested, well, we, our county board essentially didn't make enough noise. But if you're willing to move an All-Ireland final for two weeks to accommodate Tyrone, why not Sligo last year? When there was no club championships after the inter-county season last year, there was nothing. You would have could have put it back into January, albeit January is very difficult for COVID. That would have had complications. But isn't, isn't, there's a little bit of a class war yeah. here isn't, isn't, at Sligo. The answer is very simple, isn't it? All Ireland semi final is more important. All Ireland semi final, yeah. So the elite, the elite, prosper in that regard. All Ireland f- semi final. What you're saying is an All Ireland semi final is too big to fail. 
yeah. but a Connacht semi-final involving Sligo, well, that's okay. And you're also saying to the club players in Kerry and Mayo and Tyrone also, well, you're going to have to wait your turn and you're going to have to finish your business now in the depths of winter. Because now, but there could be a replay out of this. There could be an outbreak, as Royal pointed out, in one of the other counties. Mm. So it's a very difficult situation for the GA. As Royal pointed out, they're not going to win either way, no matter what there's going to be. It's it, it's almost impossible situation for them. Uh, it would be a significant uh, reversal from last Monday's position, but it's one I believe they will probably consider very, very strongly at this point. OK, we'll see how that goes tomorrow. So um, let's go through the other pieces then. I'd say it's light enough in the papers, aside from the Mayo Dublin coverage in many ways. Uh, some last pieces on the Olympics, too, in particular, Ryle, you were there. I mean, you've been to other Olympic Games. How did this compare out there? Obviously, very different for obvious reasons. Yeah, very different for obvious reasons. Look, being at the events themselves were uh, were just fantastic. But it was it was, geez, I felt for the athletes. Uh, I felt for the I felt for the people of of Japan. You know, all the expense and none of the glory. Um, and that was really hard to watch. Um, I was I spent a bit of time in what I can only describe as a magnificent facility, the Tokyo Aquatic Center, which was purpose built for the Olympics, 15,000 seater stadium pool, diving pool, the best of the best facilities behind the scenes for the athletes in terms of warm up areas and, and, and facilities. And and it was it was just soulless and, and hard to to be in when there was such terrific talent on show and, and you felt for the athletes. That's their it's their moment. By and large, you're talking about minority, so-called minority sports, and it's their day in the sun, and and there was no one there, not their families, not their friends, not a crowd to to cheer it. And I found it, I found that part of it really hard. I mean, I think the Japanese did an incredible job of getting through it, uh, uh, the way that they did. Um, everything worked as you would expect when you go to Tokyo, um, and and it was it was interesting and engaging but a bit soulless right so there you go yeah um in terms of the pieces that are in the paper just before we leave the, the ga and i have been out of the loop for the last uh, uh, number of, of weeks um joe as you know in terms of being totally clued into everything that's going on at home but there's a piece in the sunday independent page 10 about the l uh, gfa and the and the issues around um the playing of competitions uh in the ladies gaelic football association for for the minors and nadine doherty um for the underage teams and nadine doherty is, has picked it up in the in the indo today and i found this i did I, I i kind of understood that it was out there but i didn't quite get the level of where we were at and, and i always accept that there's two sides to every story but the piece that nadine does is um, she refers to uh, Kerry-Ann Walsh, a Monaghan under-16 footballer, also aged 15, who she compares to uh, the activist Greta Thunberg, who was 15 when she started her campaign on, on climate change. And, and she says of Kerry-Ann Walsh, her plea is a simpler one than Thunberg's. All we want to do is train a few times and go out and play an All-Ireland semi-final. There's something deeply disconcerting about seeing a teenage girl pleading with her sports governing body to play more football. Having written to the Ladies Gaelic Football Association, Kerry-Ann also set up an online petition to try and force them to reverse their decision not to play all the All-Ireland series at any underage level. The petition has in excess of 4,000 signatures and is still growing. Uh, the, and Nadine Doherty goes on, 
Um, it's a particularly bitter pill to swallow as they know they are being treated differently to their male counterparts, something which is uh, constant in the lives of girls and women who play sport. All of the codes, Camogie included, are completing an All-Ireland series this year. The supreme efforts the GAA have made to ensure the completion of the 2020 Minor Championship with fixtures being played in July of 2021 shows it can be done. Unfortunately, this doesn't seem to have had any impact on the LGFA's staunch unwillingness to review their decision. I, I just can't get my head around, around this. And again, you, you appreciate there's two sides to the story, but I don't understand where the blockage is. Yeah, no, I was, I was going to come to this um... It is a big story. We covered it on the show during the week. Like the LGFA, so obviously this is different from the GEA. I mean, people, you'll see this now. This is going to go into, I think, mainstream this week. I feel like that's the trajectory of the story. And you will see people who don't know sport giving out about the GEA and how they're treating the boys and the girls differently. This is the LGFA. It's a separate organisation. And it is disappointing. Now, I think the LGFA... Logic is that they... And Nadine Doherty outlines it here... They want to prioritise club football. They're conscious of state exams and obviously that, that affects the age group we're talking about, the return to third level education as well. And I suppose maybe the the most compelling argument, if you want to say they have a compelling argument, is with Ladies GA, the high number of underage players who play across all the age groups, including up to senior. So they've huge commitments as is. You will often have... 16, 17, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds obviously playing for um big part of the, the senior team. But again, I suppose the argument against that is that's always the case. You know, that's the case every year. So um, it is a bitter pill to swallow, I would think, Colm, for all those underage players who are looking at their male counterparts finishing out these games. And we're not talking at this stage about a raft of games, by the way. Like, they're quite... They've, they've played a number already, so they're quite a way through the championship. So it's not like we're talking about, you know, a schedule right across the country, up and down the country. I mean, this seems very doable. This decision was made by the LGFA in May, as, um, you know, I suppose they were trying to plan out the summer. And they said, right, we'll leave it at that. That's our decision in May. And the argument now is, would you not revisit it in some way? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned there, there the, the, there's far more Venn diagrams in terms of players in, in ladies football than there is in, in, in Gaelic football and, and hurling. And uh, a good 16, 17 year old will more than likely be uh, on their club minor team and their senior club team as well. Whereas that's not the case in the GAA. If you're under 17, you can't play adult football. So the overlaps are much greater in, in ladies football. And obviously that places a greater demand on, on time that obviously the Ladies uh, Association have looked at here and say, well, we can shave off two weekends uh, by not by not going to an All-Ireland series at, at, at our underage competitions. You can see a little bit of logic in that, but you can also understand that these players will never get an opportunity again in this age bracket to play an All-Ireland uh, semi-final and, and, and final. Yeah. So in that regard... Uh, that is the difficulty for them. But the, the crossover of players between the ages is far greater in, in ladies football. And by by committing to those two weekends, and obviously you'll have to have a break between an All-Ireland semi-final and, and, and final of two weeks. Well, you don't have to, but generally that would be the, the rule of thumb, certainly in uh, uh, in, in the GAA. Uh, you are eating up more time into the, into the club game that obviously the, the LGFA, and I'm sure they've looked at this pretty closely, the LGFA can't, can't can't afford to set aside 
given those overlaps, I would think that's the that is the main consideration here above any, above anything else. Mm-hmm. I actually don't know the reason why I haven't looked haven't looked into this. Obviously, heard it during the week, and I'm reading this piece, and it's very well constructed by Nadine Doherty, and she does say at the end, you know, it is in the mid-teens uh, where the biggest drop-off in 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 ladies uh, in ladies football. Uh, is but I think those players that are playing for their counties are probably among the most committed, and they're most likely not to drop off. Uh, but certainly, players who don't have uh, a proper uh, schedule of club games uh, on a regular basis, they're more likely to drop off. So it's a it's a it's a difficult one, but I can see some reasoning as to why, because of the time and the overlaps. Uh, that's that'd be my view on it. Yeah, although the. Nadine does, does point out all other codes, Camogie included, which would have that overlap as well. They are completing the All-Ireland Series. And we are talking about, what, four counties and then ultimately two whoever reached the final because like they, all the counties decided to go ahead with their provincial championships anyway. So the pr- provincial championships are done. Yeah. So, I mean, we are talking. Yeah, and, and also we're talking probably about the, about the about the young women who are are not at necessarily playing above uh, their their age grade, who may not be playing um, at intercounty level at a, a, because at, at an older age, you know, at a senior at senior age group. I just think taking away the opportunity that like they it, the dreams and ambitions and the commitment. Are, are all relative to the age you are and the dreams you have. And and to take those away is a big, big decision. Mm. And and I think the, the, the LGFA, if they haven't already, and I put up the asterisks of having been out of, out of the loop for a little while, if there isn't a very clear message and understanding as to why this has been done, they need to do that. Because on the face of it, reading that article, I cannot get my head wrapped around that we're having this conversation again yeah. about men's and women's sports. Yeah, yeah. We invited them I, on the show this I week. I think I'd add on this, I think the oxygen of publicity around this that's clearly generating now, and Joe, you feel it will become a lot more mainstream. Uh, I, I think it's, I, I think a story like, I can just see this story I, going mainstream. Yeah, I, yeah. I think, I think, I think the oxygen of, of publicity and public opinion will, will force a change here, but Ryle is right it hasn't been set out clearly. At least I haven't seen it. I'm sure there's been internal communication about around this decision and about the fears of mm. committing too many players to too many competitions well, and all of do, that. Do, but do you know what? I think, I think public opinion will tilt this. I probably will. If they have a good argument, then come out and make it. Like we tried to get them on the show this week and we got, you know, you get an email statement back, which is no good when you're on trying to have a radio um, piece on it. So if they've if they've really strong arguments, come out and make them. It might be at that point. Um, on Tokyo, just two pieces caught the eye. I'll briefly mention this. We don't really need to drag this out too much, but it, it's, it was an interesting read. Tim Wigmore, it's in The Telegraph. It's also in The Sunday Independent. It's just an interesting interview with the head of the Athletics Integrity Unit, which was set up about four years ago. Basically, the AIU, as it's uh, referred to, is going after dopers at the Games. And there was the... Bahrain 1500 metres runner who was caught at the games there was a Georgian shot putter there was a Kenyan sprinter um, but it was just quite interesting to hear from Brett Clothier who's the head of the Athletics Integrity Unit about where anti-doping is at and basically you know he was saying uh, the general public now understand that you know no news isn't good news um, necessarily that you know it just means the people who are doping are getting away with it but basically, the way anti-doping has gone now is that this it, it's not really just about testing. It's not a numbers game, he says. Basically, it's all intelligence-led. So effectively, that is how you catch people now. You do months and months and months of in, 
intelligence and investigative work. So he says the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, have 15 staff on its intelligence team, whereas the AIU have 26 full-time staff, 10 on the intelligence team. And he's just talking dopers these days, very sophisticated. It's hard to detect. That's why we need the intelligence. And, um, you know, in terms of the numbers, he makes the point, or Tim Wigmore does rather, at the Athletics World Championships in 2011, there were half a percent of competitors who failed tests. But there was an, an anonymous survey by WADA and 30, 30% of athletes at those 2011 World Championships admitted to using illegal drugs. So that shows, you know, how testing fails and how it has to be about basically undercover investigations now. So that was kind of an interesting insight into where it's at. By the way, I, I just could never believe, I remember reading that World Championships in 2011 where there were 0.5 positive tests, but the WADA anonymous survey, 30% admitted using illegal drugs. I could never just understand why WADA just didn't say, actually, scrap that. It's not anonymous anymore. Uh, you're all done. <laughs> <laughs> it was the it was the easiest catch all of all time that they passed up on. Uh, Ryle, when, when you're covering all these games and like I remember you were doing the triathlon and doing various endurance uh, sports where I'm sure uh, doping would be very, very helpful. And you have that 2011 30 percent figure ringing in your ear. Do you find it difficult to cover the events in real time and to get excited about them in real time? Um, that is a good question, uh, Joe. I think if you if you spend if you look for if you look for it everywhere that you that we are in our industry, if you look for it in all sports, uh, you, you know that it's going on. And but you have to believe, uh, and I have, have have to believe that the vast majority of athletes and players uh, across all sports are 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 tr- are are completing competing clean uh, uh, that is probably considered to be a very naive statement but i but i believe the vast majority now are the vast majority at the top end of olympic sport that's a different question but what the olympics i have definitely walked away from every time i've come away is that that whether it's the irish team or the uh, uh, ukrainian team or the german team or the costa rican team there are the vast majority of athletes that go in there go in with the dream of becoming an olympian and performing to their best on the on the uh on the biggest stage and there's something that cliched maybe about that but it, but it still rings true i think if you go back and check with all the irish athletes that were there in tokyo the it, the becoming an olympian and and showing up to try and give their best was was what it was about for them they probably didn't go believing that they were going to win medals and specifically with 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 the sports and and doping you know it's there you you hope it's going to be uh, uh, caught in the cases where it has the impact of of helping to win medals but you know people are going to slip through you know that that uh, uh, a lot of them are ahead of the testing regime and but if you if you stop and question every single thing, I think you've got probably going to take any enjoyment out of it uh, uh, for both yourself and for the viewer. So, yeah. so it's a really fine line, Nate. I, I I don't really know the answer to that. I I think you can become overly cynical, and I think you can be be blindly naive. I would like to think I'm somewhere in the middle. Fair enough. Um, briefly, then the power of gold. Tommy Conlon. He's just uh, musing on what Kelly Harrington should do and. Uh, he did get a quote from her in the Irish Times 12 months ago, which I hadn't seen before, on turning pro, potentially. 
if the money was right and I had a nice contract with so many fights, maybe a three-year contract with very, very good money, then I would turn professional. But if it's crap money and a crap contract, then I'm not interested. I can stay amateur. I have no need for that. Less stress, more success. So, I mean, that's a good outlook, I would think, Column Keys, if um, she is weighing up contracts in front of her. Three-year deal, a million, two million, then very tempting. Get yourself a house, get yourself set up for life at 31. If the money's no good, as Billy Walsh on this show during the week and Tommy Conlon references that suggested in the main it isn't. I mean, there's still so little money in women's boxing that who knows what kind of contract offer she gets. Uh, be interesting to see what she does. Well, and, and how much, what can she generate? And Tommy mentions that. I mean, you know, how, how best to leverage her gold money or her gold medal into money in the bank. And that's probably always the question for Olympians going back to, to Michael Carruth even. How... How do they capitalize on it if they retain amateur status? And uh, that's that's the challenge because the Olympics, OK, it's three years time. But as a nation, as a public, we may not switch off Kelly Harrington and she'll always be in the conscience. That's for sure. But the Olympics draws people in. And then there's nothing for for three. It's four years, obviously. So. So really, to stay amateur, it's it's would be the next Olympics in in three years' time for her, and she will, to some degree, slip from our conscious, and that that's always the challenge for, certainly from from capitalising point of view on on an Olympic gold medal, and I would feel that that is that it has been the challenge for all, all the time, and even how, what did the O'Donovans make out of it from twenty sixteen, and I suppose you look at all these things. Uh, they, they they do fade to the background after a while because world championships really don't sustain the wider public in the same way that Olympics do. No, the goodwill doesn't pay the bills, Ryle is the point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Tommy's, Tommy's article is really strong because it lays out very clearly what our options are and walks you through them. And, and uh, you know, we're a small nation and it's a small market and Kelly Harrington is a star. Is a star. There is absolutely no question about it. But, but, but the question is, what commercial value is there on her achievement? And the truth is, it's. It, I think it's limited. I think it's. I, I think the, that she will definitely get a return from it, and you and you would hope it will be a significant return. But I have my doubts. I think, I think the, um, the situation has developed over the years. We now, like, I mean, I know Kelly Carrington's agent, and and, and Tommy refers to him as Dave McHugh at Line of Sports, and and there are a number of 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 agents in the marketplace now that probably weren't there six, eight, ten years ago. Um, if Irish people had agents, they tended to be Irish sports people. They tended to be based in the UK, um, but but that industry has has increased in its its engagement in, in this territory. But it is still limited, and and Kelly's achievement, and he references it here. Uh, this is of course the other advantage. Of the, sorry, let me just grab it. Once an elite amateur turns professional, they essentially become self-employed. All the support structures that were laid on for free by government sub, um, subvention are stripped away. The gym, full-time coach, the strength and the conditioning, the nutritionists, etc., uh, etc. Et the costs are now taken from your bottom line. The manager and the promoter will take their cut too. The camaraderie of the national team is gone. You're basically on your own. So there's the decision. Mm. For. Mm. Uh, and I don't envy her that decision. But what I do get the sense is that woman will make the decision that's right for her and she will be happy with that decision because I think she's got her head screwed on and and is very much in 
control of her emotion, control of her own destiny, and and whatever she chooses to do, I think it will be her choice. Yeah, I think the, I suppose the one thing that shines brighter than the medal itself is her personality, and that that can carry her a long way, and her, her very much her outlook on life. So I think that will sustain her uh, if she remains uh, amateur. And will will certainly generate some. I I would think would be able to generate some significant monetary gain. But that's for sure. The market in Ireland uh, is is limited, and I suppose there are many Olympic champions around the world in England. There there are very very few here. It will carry her along a, a long way, but within a very limited market. That's mm, for sure. Mm. Fellas, clock's right against us. Uh, I'll breeze by the Jonathan Wilson piece on uh, Messi, but I thought it was very good on PSG. And, you know, he's just musing on the fact now that when we're flicking around, we probably will stop and watch PSG hammer another French team. And he's almost wondering, is that the point of sport? Like, and, and football in particular, where it was supposed to be about competition, but now we'll just tune in to watch Messi, Neymar and Mbappe beat the pulp out of some lesser opposition. And he was talking as well about where the way football clubs are going so he said, he said uh, the Real Madrid CEO has said that the model for Real Madrid now is Disney and then I was uh, I'm, I really hope this happens he said at least one super club is seriously yeah. seriously considering the production of a semi-fictionalised soap opera based on the dressing room and boardroom drama and uh, that's kind of where uh, football is I suppose and that you know, that piece goes that piece goes really well with uh, with the Eamon Sweeney piece yeah. on the on the back of the of the Sunday Independent. It, they both make you think about about where it is right now. You know, I, I, I I'm sorry, I know you're out of time. So yeah, I'll, sorry, I'll, no, I'll you're right, you're right. The, but... two, the two do sit very well together. Yeah, uh, John and Wilson has a good line saying, "If competition is anything like a priority, European football has failed." And so, like you know, Premier League is competitive. In fairness, he says, but. Bayern Munich in Germany, PSG now in France. He says Inter did win Serie A last year, but now they're 600 million in debt, as in football is broken. So Juve are firm favourites once again. And if Spain looks more open, it's only because of the chaos at Madrid and Barcelona. So he's just talking about actually, you know, just beneath the surface. Uh, football is a mess. Just um, to finish, column, something completely different. And it's an amazing piece. I mean, it just about gets under the sport heading, I think. Um, because of the golf link. Uh, so it's David Walsh talking to Chris Aves, or Avis, I'm not sure the pronunciation of his name. Uh, poor fella, he was um, worked for um, London Police and he was on that bridge by Westminster back in 2017, Westminster Bridge, when uh, the terrorists drove the 4x4 there and he was one of the people hit by the 4x4. Uh, others were killed, obviously. It was a terrorist attack. His lower limbs smashed, multiple fractures, spinal cord dislocated. Uh, he woke up eight, de- eight, eight days after the accident and was pretty much told, you're never going to walk again. And it's ruined his marriage, unfortunately, um, which is desperate. We split with, uh, talking to his wife, Marissa, we split. She now lives in one home. I live in another. That's been the biggest impact. He talked about the depression. I'm less uh, positive around people to whom I'm close, depressed sometimes. I only admit that to family and very close friends. I'm very lonely. Um, Something I haven't admitted to Marissa. We were arguing quite a lot. It probably wasn't fair to put the children through that. Got to a point where I just wasn't happy. Um, He's able to play golf courtesy of this amazing technology, which effectively holds him still from the waist down. And he can swing and talked about the tears when he was able to play golf again. But um, Really different piece, brilliant piece, really, Colm. It really is, Joe, and it, it really, it, it, it certainly caught me. Uh, it's a life story. Obviously, this man is a, a police constable, was a, was a police constable in 
in London, but it's his desire to get out and uh, and play golf that really, really struck me. And there's a picture of him on the, uh, it's a customized golf cart and uh, he's half seated, he's half standing and he's swinging, taking his shot. And I suppose it's a story of hope and what's what's possible and just a desire to uh, to hit a golf ball and sometimes we just don't appreciate the small things like that that's what struck me about it most we don't really appreciate the small things we have when when we're fit and able-bodied and well and able to do it and to see him in his customized golf, golf cart giving him obviously life took its wrong turn for him on several fronts but to be able to hit a ball like that it's given him immense satisfaction. It's not really a sports story. It's a life story that revolves around just the desire to do the simple thing and play a game of golf. So that that's what took me about. It's a very interesting read. Yeah, Ryle, I, I do take the joy he gets from being able to play golf and accept that. Ultimately, though, it's I, I just found it such a sad piece. You know, going to work, terrorist attack. He's been robbed of his body in many ways and it's destroyed his relationship, you know, kids involved I mean it's wonderful that the sport is there as an outlet for him but my god I just thought this is just so sad so so sad this story yeah I I, I don't really have an awful lot to add it is it is a story of 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 uh, of unthinkable pain uh, and unthinkable destruction to a life and yet the, that pillar of, of just wanting to go out and do something simple that as as Colm says we all take so much for granted when we're able-bodied I, I really do like the last uh, line from from David Walsh on it he stretches out his putter draws the ball back knocks it straight into the hole and joins the battalion of golfers who could play off scratch with their second ball yeah he'd missed <laughs> he'd missed the vital putt in their match and then took it again like we all do hits the second one well um, so that's on page 18 of the Sunday Times. Well worth a read. Uh, Chris Ave is, is his name. Um, so he was there in Westminster Bridge on March 22nd, 2017. He was 35 years old then. So uh, very honest with David Walsh. Uh, fellas, that was great. Really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. Colin Keyes from the Irish Independent. I'm sure you're, uh, you've much to get writing about for tomorrow. And Ryle Nugent, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it, fellas. Thanks, thanks Ryle. Pleasure. Thanks, Take guys. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball 